All right, welcome to Consuming Jung, episode eight. I am Logan, and I'm here again with my friend Tim. Hey, folks! This week we're talking about the role of symbols. Got into a lot of ancient stuff in this chapter, uh, comparing, looking at ancient man, uh, individuals compared to to civilizations, and the importance of of emotion to psychologists, the feeling. It was a, it was a good one. Yeah, and as you're speaking there, I I just kind of I think realized the connecting theme in the whole chapter, all kind of for the first time, even though I read it now uh, once fully and then skimmed it. But it's this idea of that that man has an adolescence, that the you know mankind has adolescence, um, and it's rooted in our ancient history. And he's been sort of talking around this for a while, so it's not an entirely new concept. But he he well. At one point, he explicitly draws the uh, metaphor of our collective adolescence being similar to the adolescence of a child. Um, and this is, I feel like this is going to be a hard metaphor to really put to words. But, um, uh, but and then that the our archetypal thoughts can sort of be compared to the incoherent or simplistic thoughts that a child might have. Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that I'm I like that analogy I think it's a good one that man is similar to civilization and you can think of uh, the initial thoughts that we have as like what a child would would be thinking of like that sort of initial innocent stage and that makes sense what I have trouble with is that that's that goes quite deep Right, so the time scales are a little hard to work with because you're talking about we had this evolutionary biology going on for what billions of years. Like I don't know how long it took archetypes to evolve or thoughts for for like the precursor to thoughts and then thoughts themselves. But that must have been at least millions of years, maybe billions. I, I really don't know. But then we're talking about moving on to the next stage, perhaps of man, the rational state of man. And that took place in just a few hundred years. Hmm. So I don't. Yeah. I feel like the metaphor or the analogy breaks down a little bit, although it is still a good one. Right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Chronologically speaking, our our adolescences or our our like childhood would be long. Although I guess it depends on when you start counting too. Because I mean, in theory, you could also start way back in in the first you know cellular division or whatever. So. Um, yeah, right, right. Yeah, there's also another connection I want to make. And because last episode, I think it was last one, we were actually talking about this idea that uh, as maybe oversimplified as Christianity or religion is in general, you could sort of make the argument that if you're going to raise children, it's a good starting point. So that's really interesting, uh, sort of put next to what we're talking about now, because uh what Jung is saying, it seems, is that modern man, or sorry, uh, pre-modern man, just naturally was submerged in symbolism like everywhere, and everything was a spirit, uh, and the idea of rationality wasn't even really a part of anything. Um, and then we, it's, it does seem like, even if there's things to regret about it, I think it's fair to say we've grown out of at least the naive uh, wholesale purchase of these religious ideas. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess you could say it seems like we're entering kind of an adolescence right now. I mean, insofar as that metaphor is um, 
useful anyway. Right. And you would expect there to be growing pains in that sort of transition. And that's what Jung claims is that, you know, these are the, the precursor for our thoughts. They're, they're it's almost instinctual on the level of instinct in us, these archetypes. And it's maybe how we were first thinking in these symbols and certainly feelings and, and perhaps symbols and then thoughts. Who knows what will come next? But we're in a transitionary period, but our body, our mind still insists on on pushing these symbols onto us, even as we're losing the capacity or the will to interpret them in that more ancient way. We're like, well, we like rationality now. We build rocket ships and we've, we're curing cancer. You know, we don't need any of this voodoo or superstition, uh, but our bodies, our minds won't let us forget about that per se. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just, and maybe this is relying on the metaphor too much, although maybe not, but, you know, when a child is becoming more rational, they might strive to be, you know, adult-like in various ways. Forget about the rationality part. They just are striving to be adult-like, but because they're just so recently out of childhood, they're still going to be almost at the mercy of these uh, of these childish concerns. You know, they'll, they'll throw a tantrum or they'll do you know, many things that, that are not adult-like, but it's it's almost like they can't help themselves. Um, and it's because they're in that transitionary period. So I wonder as well if if that could apply to us. Although I want to say, like something in, in me resists that because I do have a feeling like, like we shouldn't be moving on from these spiritual thoughts like they're, like they're totally worthless. But at the same time, I guess with a child, like they throw a tantrum, right? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really encourage them to ignore their anger or whatever you would, but you would encourage them to handle it more responsibly. So maybe, maybe that would be a better way to sort of make the metaphor work if I'm not trying too hard at this point, but to say that we, we, maybe it's right to move on to this more distant relationship we have with emotions and um, and symbolism and stuff, but also that we shouldn't just ignore them like they're not there because that's also not going to go anywhere um, sustainable. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I don't think that's <clears throat> overburdening the analogy. I mean, we, we're still monkeys. We, it, it, so how do people say it's, they say it's irrational to expect people to be rational. You can, you can mm. set up your game theory and think, well, people behave well, right? Let's do communism, but the right way, like we'll share everything. It's never been done the right way. Well, of course you can't, you have to expect that people will break the rules. Mm. And we've just sort of inherited this system that we're in. We have this consciousness that's, that's, enclosed in this body and we will act irrationally like guaranteed the most rational person you know maybe there are some wise men in egypt walking in the desert that mm -hmm. have surpassed us right and all they need is is sunshine and water and maybe not even the water but they they you know they may not exist we all have these problems and we just kind of have to make the most of it. So a child will be angry. You don't want to tell the child like, oh, just stop being angry. You know, that's mm -hmm. not a reasonable response or like to shame them for being angry when that's 
that's just going to be a manifestation. Part of why I have a problem with the idea of original sin, maybe I haven't fully fleshed out, but to you're just kind of set up for failure, but then you like shame yourself for what you will inevitably do. It just doesn't seem quite right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I have more of that, but how, how did you, how would you react to that? Um, well, just spell that idea, that last idea out. I, th- I feel like you abandoned it so quickly. Yeah, it's just kind of losing my, I was losing sight of the end, but, you know, we, to reiterate, we inherit our lives. We didn't ask to be born, but you kind of have to make the most of it. And part of making the most of it is recognizing that we haven't reached that late stage of human development. We are not in control of our feelings. We're not in control of our rationality. We have these archetypes that are going to come to us in our dreams. We'll have these certain feelings that will invalidate any thoughts about how noble and wise we are, because then we'll feel something like lust or anger Mm. or some kind of like lower level emotion. And we don't really, we're in a position where we can't, we have to just incorporate that bad stuff. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. We can't pretend that we can overcome it with fortitude alone. That's mm. the hand you're dealt. You just have to, to play it as well as you can. Right. There's this idea that you, like you can't jump to the absolute. You have to, you have to, if you have a goal, you always have to actually traverse the ground between. And in our case, yeah, that just means that, um, yeah, we have such emotional, luminous roots, and and you you actually warned me you're going to ask me about that word, so feel free to spring that on me whenever. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, we come from a very luminous background, and it and it and, it, and it's naive actually to almost childishly naive in a way to think that that just has no hold on us, and that we're these perfectly rational beings now, uh, walking around making rational decisions. Right. Uh, I'd like to swing the comment the conversation to numinosity. I think that's, who knows how it's pronounced. I only read it. But I, before we do that, I just want to give you an extension of the analogy that I think is useful. Because again, Jung talks about individuals and civilizations, and he, he points things out, I think, that are that are useful in the ways that analogies are useful. And he seems to be, he's worried. He's, he said, we should be kind of careful about what we're losing here. You know, we're losing this important level of interpretation, and without it, we're dissociated. We've become schizophrenic, like the world became schizophrenic after World War II. It sort of lost all its values. You know, hum- just individuals also lose their their values and their ability to be integrated with the world once they lose this sort of psychic energy. And I was seeing that, and I thought, well. Yes, that that seems like I can sort of imagine the the noble man living in nature, you know, 10,000 years ago. But I also have this deep-rooted idea after reading Steven Pinker's books that life has never been better. We're making progress that I would not want to stop, that I don't think superstition is useful. I don't think superstition or these even spiritual ideas actually add much to, could be wrong on that, that most recent point, um, but I sort of see that the transition to that ultimately rational and advanced civilization that has kind of shed to a large extent these ancient ideas, I think that actually is a desirable place to go based on what, mm. what, how we've seen things develop thus far. 
but I would say that there's going to be a downhill portion. So if you're climbing in a mountain range and you want to reach a peak, you may have to go down to go even higher. And in this transition, it just like starting a new habit, it's very awkward to to start a new exercise routine, for instance. Like it doesn't actually feel good while you're doing it. You're not stronger. In fact, you're immediately weaker in the aftermath. You lost that bit of time. You know, you're, you have new body odors. There are certain costs that come initially with starting something new, but that you can sort of see the end and say, well, that I know where I'm headed. So mm. I don't expect an immediate reward because the overall trend is good. So that was a lot. So, so what do you think of all that? No, I completely agree. I that's very much how I think of um, what is happening today. And there's there's so many different ways you could you could talk about it. Although more and more, I'm becoming comfortable saying that it's a significant transition. And even that we're in it now, and it's not like it's about to start, but it has started, especially with the Corona stuff. But um, but you know, one one I think way you could phrase it that well, at least that you and I certainly agree on is that. Um, there's a lot of focus on secular and objective thinking today. And, and I, yeah, I think it's too much, but I also think that it's just a natural consequence of growing in the way that we seem like we should be insofar as we have a should. Uh, I, it, it almost seems like, and I really don't like the word destined or destiny almost at all, but at the same time, it almost seems like we were destined to grow out of, um, where we came from and where we came from was this numinous place, this, uh, you know, everything was metaphorical, gods were everywhere. Um, not really much rational, um, rigorous thought. Um, everything was an analogy and, and, uh, and it seems like we should have grown out of that and we're, and it's good that we have. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, the, I think your image of sort of the mountain, peak is good. I think we're going down, um, but it's the route we have to go to, to, to achieve something much to get, to get somewhere better. And for me, that has to be some kind of synthesis between the two, some, some, some more honest synthesis. I, I feel like right now there's so much rationalism and so much, um, of, uh, like that's such a prime value and it's play, it's like opposed to religious thinking or spiritual thinking um, in a way that just seems more persecutive, uh, than it has to be, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to look at, you know, there are people in the world that take religion very seriously and I, we don't have to look at people like that, or just even that way of thinking in general, take out the people specifically, just say that way of thinking, we don't have to vilify it so much. And uh, but again, you know, maybe that's just sort of part of the transition we have to go to is to kind of reject that wholesale before we can take it back in in a, in a way that's more healthy. Yeah, I haven't made up my thoughts on it, but I have come full circle where I go from believing in religion to not believing it to now seeing why someone could believe in religion and not just thinking they're inherently stupid for showing up for Sunday mass. I, I, I see the value in it now, even if I can't incorporate it into my own life. I see that there's a there there. Mm. Uh, but so how about this term of numinosity? This is a critical point in this chapter. How would you define that word? Yeah, it's an interesting one to try to define, actually. And, and I've encountered it in some of the um, 
channels like on YouTube, I follow, I, I watch this channel, I've told you about it before, Rebel Wisdom, and this word numinous comes up a lot. And and I think earlier I accidentally said luminous, but to me it, it kind of actually has that uh, that feeling of there being like a um, a light emanating from it. If something's numinous, it's like it means something almost before you even think about it. So, so I mean, maybe if you had a really powerful dream and you wake up and it still has this grip on you, it's, you know, you haven't decided to be gripped by it. It's like, it's gripping you. I think that touches on the idea of numinous. I think also there's like this relationship with, with numbers and, and, and numinous. And I actually don't know if that is, if that's an actual connection um, uh, with the history of words there. But, but to me, that just makes me think of that you could look at something and if it's numinous, there could be multiple interpretations, you know, numerous interpretations. Um, and none of them are really true, but when it's, when it's numinous, they all kind of, they appear at the same time and you, um, and you, it's not that one is truer than the other. And, um, yeah. And I guess I just add to that. There's also this idea of mysteriousness that kind of almost can't go away or at least not while keeping it numinous. If, if it's not mysterious, I would say it's almost not numinous. So that's all my thoughts on it anyway, but it's definitely a word I've just been encountering and um, just trying to learn about through just a kind of, I don't know, feeling it out. Um, and, and I also think that part of the definition is that it's not rigorous. I mean, I'm sure you could rigorously define the word because it is a word and words are rigorous things, but I think the thing it points to is is very much about a lack of rationality that's it's it's telling yeah that you can describe this word in paragraphs i don't think a lot of words are like that but this one certainly is a dense mm. word a lot of meaning and part of it yeah it's it's because it's containing something that we can't describe in words but you mean it that way like when you use the word numinous you're sort of saying even I don't even understand w the full implications of this mm. word. You know, it's sort of it can be a source, perhaps, of everything that's meaningful to me. Or it's a way of describing everything. The meaning of my life is is contained in that word. Right. And so that's not <laughs> you don't want to throw it around lightly. Um, yeah. Not 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 a lot of other words that can take its place. There are some in like philosophy, certainly. But this one feels more religious. I hear it more in religious tones than sort of like the hyper-rational philosophists. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's, it's interesting, that, now, now that you bring that up, it's it's almost mm -hmm. like, it, it to me, it somehow straddles religious thinking and rigorous thinking. It's almost like a, it's almost like a rigorous way of pointing to a real phenomenon. You know, it's not like downplaying it. Like you could say superstitious. That's quite a negative word. It's not exactly the, pointing at the same thing either, but whereas numinous is almost, it's a little bit reverent and yet it's still rigorous in a way that, so I don't know. To, yeah, when you said religious, um, it's like, to me, it's both in some way that I actually quite like. Does that feel the same to you? Yeah, it almost feels like in the intersection, a connecting point between religion and philosophy. Hmm a word that you know that that's a bridge where they can actually both agree there's something going on there that hmm. they both value yeah yeah okay we've been talking about this word a lot but i i just feel like just to make it um more concrete i'm just gonna prompt you here 
if I told you that, um, let's say I, um, let's say I had a coffee date and I told you it was very numinous, what would you think? I mean, assuming that it means anything at all. I mean, it's kind of a weird comment, but if you had to force some interpretation on that, what would that mean to you? I would think that during the coffee dates, like you had evoked a strong emotions that you had met, you know, uh, a kindred spirit, like your soulmate or a deep friend, someone that can bring those emotions out of you that you were like kind of left in awe mm. after what had happened with this person, which is possible with coffee dates. There are some people out there that are absolutely magnificent, especially when they you know, become entangled in your own life and that interplay. Like people can be so surprising like that. This is just another person like me, but they can be, it can feel profound mm. to interact with them. So like kind of, I think I got to react in that way. Is that, is that sound about what you would yeah, expect? No, yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, it clarified even more. The two words that stuck out to me are awe and profound. So yeah, that's an interesting word. That was fun to kind of explore that. Yeah. So you get a sense, yeah, of how, what this word means. And, and I think for Jung, it's, it's how he's trying to describe the value of these things. Like we don't quite understand it, but we're in awe of these symbols. They're in us. We're, we're aroused to emotion and spirituality by these things. You don't, can't really describe it rationally. It goes beyond that. It goes into just kind of the same awe that you feel when you look at the Milky Way. You know, how do you describe that feeling? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about um, individuals as the lens? This is an idea that Jung has already brought up several times, but he talks about it more here. And it's just, again, that there are no universal interpretations of symbols. You have to have a deep understanding of the individual you're talking to to help them interpret their dreams you know you have to understand because you can see have the number 13 and if they don't have any like superstition about that number then that number is just another number to them but if they like would be the kind of person that wouldn't want to stay in room 13 in a hotel then that number 13 represents something quite different yeah. And so it matters. It matters uh, who the individual is in this case. Maybe not a super dense point, but I, it, was, it was highlighted again. So any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, yeah, he's been sort of touching on this in different ways. And I think it's even related in a way to what we were just talking about. Um, because this, the scientific worldview is really all about uh, specifying things without positing an observer or like any kind of subjective um, viewpoint, you know, either the moon is orbiting the earth or it's not. And that's a scientific fact that can be judged scientifically. And part of, I think, what he's pushing back is this whole outlook of, I guess, the certainty of rationality. And so to me, that sort of touches, I don't think it's really exactly the same point, but I think it's related because he's saying that if you want to be effective in sort of uh, analyzing these archetypes and analyzing somebody's dreams, you there is no mechanist. There's no like analytical framework that you can apply as like an algorithm. You need the individual, and you need a subjective sort of understanding of the individual. And it kind of touches on a point he made a few chapters ago, where 
he was saying that the psychologist has to meet the fullness of his patient with the fullness of himself, and there's really no other way to do it. And you can't rely on these systems. So I don't know if I really made that clear, but to me there's, yeah, there's there's a sort of um, an interesting connection there between saying to understand archetypes, you need to, there needs to be an individual in the picture, otherwise the question doesn't really make sense. So there's that idea. And then that connects, I think, to sort of, it's almost like he's saying we should be skeptical of too much rationality, you know, and I feel like those are related. It, it brings to mind this idea that I've been hearing about, which is people that are masters in their craft, like the best, the best golfers or the best athletes anyways, just the best politicians, they couldn't have read textbooks or watch YouTube videos on how to be the very best. They're sort of inventing what the best is at the mm. time. And if you were to ever to go to someone that's the best in their field and they told you that you asked them, how did you do it? How did you achieve this success? You can sort of expect that if they say, well, I woke up at 6 a.m. and I worked really hard and I did this. Here's my routine. I was inspired by these people. You know, they're kind of lying to you. You know, like that's maybe what worked for them, but it's not really because you can copy that exact routine and not get the same results. And really where their success lies is something that they can't describe to other people. Maybe if they use words like numinous, they can get close, hmm. but it sort of comes from within, you know, the artist if he sets out to create art, he won't create art. You know, mm -hmm. it sort of has to come from whatever it is that's hard to describe. You know, the hand of God is a mm -hmm. good analogy there. It just comes from you. And like, I never even, where did that come from? You know, it just seemed to have come from nowhere. But I produced it. Like, this tissue, this brain produced it. Um, <laughs> sort of, I'm now, I feel like I'm getting muddled. I forgot you know, where I was heading with that point. It just, that's kind of the thought that arose from what mm -hmm. you said. Right. I don't even remember what I said, but just to respond to what you said now, um, it just it gets back to this word numinosity. If it's numinous, another aspect of it is that it calls to you, I think. Um, and so you're presented with this thing and you're almost moved, maybe just awe, but maybe also to like inspired action. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't it's, really. Go ahead. It it's um, it's very hard for me because I, I don't, I haven't fleshed out my thoughts here, and it's kind of at the higher levels of philosophy. And we talked about it in the last the last pod, but you can sort of rationalize as much as you want, and you'll never get to a why. You know, you can sort of say, well, I want to avoid suffering for all of humanity or minimize suffering and maximize enjoyment of life or well-being. That's sort of the mm -hmm. Sam Harris approach, which I think is completely rational and true. There was nothing there that I would disagree about. And yet you can't sort of get away from the fact that you have motivations. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. reasons for doing something. Even if you go to the brink of nihilism and say nothing matters and I'm just going to take my own life because nothing matters or you know, just kind of sit there in a stupor, you can get to a point where you're just absolutely confounded and you have nowhere to turn, nowhere to pull yourself up out of this sort of intellectual dark hole that you can pretty easily create for yourself. But then it it resolves itself. 
And this is something mm -hmm. I, I was reading about Hume saying something to this effect. You can get to those points, but you'll just naturally then get hungry and want to eat some food. You'll go eat a salad. You'll drink a coffee. You'll go you'll see your friends, your friends. And yeah. you'll joke around about something. And suddenly all that, that thicket, that like sort of nightmare of meaning is completely dissolved and the meaning seems to come from nowhere at all. Hmm. And it's always this way. Like you don't, we have this search for meaning, but we also can't escape meaning. Like there are definitely uh. some people, right? They get depressed and they can't feel anything. And I, th I think those are the only true people that have a lack of meaning and they really can't go on. Hmm. But everyone else, you know, so long as whatever that link to meaning isn't broken. And I think it's actually quite hard and certainly unlucky when it does break. Uh, it's just there no matter what you do or what you believe in. You're con going to continue to be hungry and like mm -hmm. want to procreate and like want to express yourself in whatever way seems desirable right. in the moment. Well, you know, even these super depressed people, you know, I'm sure that they have moments of happiness in their lives, you know, even if, you know, they've gone to weeks being depressed. But I, I doubt every moment was depressing, you know, every single one. I, I, I think... So I don't really know what point I'm trying to make there exactly, but, um, but, and, and yeah, so just now to connect it sort of to where we started, I was looking at my notes as you were talking and we started that whole thing with the idea of the, that the individual is necessary. And I think if I just reframe that now to say that there's certain ways of reasoning about the world that require the that that your reasoning or your thinking to be more general um incorporates the idea that you are a self that you're a biased person and you're you're positioned in the world somewhere you're embodied um and and where and so what you were saying about how you can sort of reason yourself into nihil you know a state of nihilism I think generally the way you reason yourself there is to be thinking in a kind of a scientific, logical, rational way to say, well, where's the meaning in life? I can't prove the meaning, so it's not there. And then what rescues you is the fact that you're not a disembodied intellect. Like actually, in reality, like reality kind of pops back up and says like, well, actually you're hungry right now. And actually you want to go play a video game or like see your friends and stuff. And so um, I don't know what the specific connection exactly is to what Jung's talking in this section, but but I think there is a connection there where reality, to, to, to deal with reality effectively, we need to consider the individual, and it's not enough to just have this cold calculating rationality. It's actually incomplete. It's an incomplete way of um, reasoning about the world. Which, in a way, when I say that, it seems obvious. Like, obviously, if you're going to reason about the world, you need to take into the you need to deal with that as an individual so yeah it's simple and you what's kind of frustrating about it perhaps is our own conditioning as modern people and perhaps the fact that we're recording this we just know that if whoever listens to this we will definitely be made out to be straw men, right? Well, like, oh, well, consider this. Like, there's sort of, it's sort of impossible to make these points, and it's quite easy. There's an infinite amount of arguments that a modern person can come up with that you and I would probably agree with, and yet still, you know, I mean, we could have compelling reasons to disagree, um, but I think, uh, I think that's part of it for me, anyways. I don't know if it is for you. 
but any sort of like frustration in expressing something simple because you actually do know all the ways in which you disagree and yet some deep part of you says this must be true and it's it's more true than all my disagreements but I'll, I'll hold them at the same time unfortunately at this point my mic stopped recording and at the same time our backup failed uh, during this recording so forgive the discontinuity here um, as we skip forward in time a bit Oh, no, there was more, one more thing I wanted to talk about. So as we've been talking about reading and talking about this uh, book, there's been this sort of, I almost want to say debate or discussion on the relative merits of pre-modern man versus how we are today. Jung is definitely making a lot of points in favor of a stronger connection to um, intuition and to uh, archetypes or symbolic thought, I guess, would be a good way to summarize it. And to me, some of that just resolved. It doesn't feel so much like a tension anymore. And now the way I'm thinking about it is that it's it's simply that as modern man, we've just become more distant to these symbolic forms of thought. It's not like we're it's not like we've we've made some jump and we need to consider whether to go back. It's actually really just that we've developed and so now we're we're just more distant to all of that stuff. And so we still experience it, but it's almost like secondhand. And a lot of our lives are sort of dominated by thought and rationality. Um, and and maybe that even you know there there could be that could be entirely natural. And again, back to this idea of destiny or something like it. It could be, you know, we, we maybe it was meant for us that we make this movement to a more distant, uh, rational framing of the world. Um, but to me, I don't know, somehow that feels like less of a tension to resolve now to try to decide, is it good or bad? It's actually just that we've moved into this new location um, and it was a gradual shift. That's that's the new part of the idea. And that now maybe the time has come for us to sort of look back and um I don't know, recapture some of that uh, numinosity. I just love that word now. I'm just going to use it in every sentence, I think, from now on. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's going to be annoying to everybody because it's sort of, it's just kind of in general a bad idea to use a word that you have to then define <laughs> for them or like you sort of know. I, I always feel like such jackass when I say a word that I then realize I they probably don't know, but I don't want to insult them by defining it, but I don't want to, you know, like there's just like, there's something rude about using such sophisticated words. Yeah, it's tough being smart, man. You do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I said about as much as I wanted to say on that. I mean, I just agree. Yeah, we're in this transitionary stage where we have these archetypes they're part of us we, we can't let go of them yet um although now that i think about it i it triggers this other thought that you know people are afraid of the future it feels uncertain and they people get really afraid when you start talking about artificial intelligence they get mm. afraid when you start talking about virtual reality well okay like if we are just electrical impulses which i think that's just kind of true we well, all of this is given rise to at least fundamentally one of the fundamental pieces is electrical mm. impulses mm -hmm. like to experience anything there has to be a chemical imbalance in the brain and so mm -hmm. chemicals mm -hmm. move or react to each other like we are the process of the chemicals reacting mm -hmm. and 
So, okay, well, then it shouldn't be impossible to put our consciousness, our brains into a vat. We are brains in a vat, right? Like in our brain, mm-hmm. it's in a vat of blood, but mm-hmm. more so in in plastic vats that are filled with some kind of sugar water or, you know, synthetic blood. It doesn't really matter. It mm-hmm. just seems like it's, it doesn't seem like there's anything impossible about what we are because we are, exist. But people, so to, to get back to um, the fear we were talking about how you can sort of, or you had said, you can get to a point of nihilism, but what brings you back from the brink is your body. You get hungry or you want to see your friends. Well, what happens if we're just bats and we don't have those bodily responses? We're pure intellect. Is the fear that we get to nihilism, but don't climb back out again? We spiral into this sort of complete lack of meaning with no biological impulses to bring us mm. back out of from the brink, you know, and I've, I've seeing that now as a worry for the first time, or like I had my own concerns about that sort of future state of humanity if we ever do get there, and now yeah. I can see sort of an obvious way in which it's doomed to fail. Hmm. Right. Well, I mean, for me, there's this idea that I've been encountering where you actually can't really have intelligence without it being in some kind of environment. It's almost like a, it's a, it's an, it's impossible to actually frame that. To have an intelligence, you have to have formed it within some environment that has some sort of impulses. And so, if you have these brains in vats, they're not. I mean, why would you have a brain in a vat actually at all, unless it's actually processing something? And if it's processing something, the data has to come from somewhere. So it, you know, as much as you try to take the brain away from the body and away from the universe you're going to get to a point where either the brain literally is like just blind to everything, in which case I almost want to say it wouldn't even be a consciousness. If you, if you, this sounds horrible, but if you like took a fetus brain and you, and you removed it from all stimulation, it would probably just, I mean, I don't even know if you could call it a brain at that point, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, maybe we won't always have bodies that get hungry, for example, or, but we will always need energy. That's one thing that if you have a brain in a vat and it needs energy, there's going to be, even if it's not the brain itself, someone's going to have to deliver that energy, right? Why are they delivering the energy? Well, it probably has something to do with what they expect the brain to do with regards to what the brain is processing. And then you, you're back to sort of processing reality. So, and that, I feel like maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but there's this whole, I, I, I've heard that there's a bit of a revolution in neuroscience about the idea of um, embodied cognition, that people are realizing more and more that to talk about cognition without talking about the fact that it's embodied both in a body and also the body is like in a universe um, is extremely limited. And so we're kind of, uh, we're learning that we have to actually incorporate uh, that into our models. And again, like the question even is malformed or doesn't make sense to talk about an intelligence devoid of a universe or an or a body for that matter Hmm. yeah that's a very good point i i think i on some level i accept that as it must be true that the intelligence needs a body to as context for itself on the other hand i can't think i can't help but think of we are almost certainly biased to think of our own intelligence as the only kind can there be an intelligence in the void, you know, like just 
that's deep in us, deep in our, not even our culture, but our biology to think. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's probably said by the smartest people. I think I've heard something similar mm. that we have these narrow AIs that can be our top Go players, our top StarCraft players, but they're still not really considered intelligences. They're just like probability, like amazing probability mm. machines where they could say the probability of success here is this, of success here. Like they don't need to crunch all the numbers, but they can have sort of floating clouds of what is the better move mm. every second. And that's not what we think of as our intelligence. Right. Um, hmm. I, I'm, I'm sputtering out on that point. I think it's a good one, but it's sort of reaching my cognitive limits. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can maybe move on to dreams now. Although I actually don't have a dream this week, so I'm very yeah. sorry. Well, that's pretty good because I also don't have a dream. <laughs> I, I, I dreamed. I, I actually had my first dreams all week last night, but I couldn't quite be. They didn't seem important enough to write down. Hmm. Um, I think in one of them I went. It was kind of about a. I was following someone through different types of crowds. I ended up in like a sewer. I didn't realize I was just entering this dark cave, right? Couldn't, couldn't see the person I was following. And in the last moment I realized I started, it was like, I didn't smell anything. I don't think I've ever smelled anything in a dream if I think about it. But I sort of knew that I was in the presence of a bunch of shit and it was absolutely pitch black. Oh but goodness. it wasn't like, it, that's just one fragment of a larger dream. And since I couldn't quite remember the dream, yeah, I didn't want to talk about it today. Okay, well, since you shared a half like sliver of a dream, I'll share mine as well. It actually involves you, and th- there was definitely more to the dream, and I really should have gotten up and written it down. But basically, what I remember is that I'm sleeping in like a bunk bed, kind of like a college dorm, um, and you're there, and some of our other friends are there. It's like a, we're all living together as roommates, and you're in. Someone leaves the house and for some reason I'm worried that I'm not doing enough like I'm sleeping in and I'm not doing my chores like that's the feeling and then I'm sort of and then you come into the room and you do some chores like you're stacking laundry or something and somehow laundry gets stacked like on my bed right next to me and but I'm kind of like half asleep (laughs) like deciding whether I should get up. And then but I but then I'm also noticing that you're not saying anything to me and I'm and I'm kind of thinking like okay well I guess I'm I'm not like. Uh, skimping on my duties because then Tim would say something and then you do and you're like Logan you know you should really do more mm. stuff you say something like that and, uh, and I'm like oh shit and then I like wake up <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that, that okay. sounds like a bit of a, a, a nightmare a sort of like that's like actually a fear that people have it's and it's funny that you think of the thing that's bad like well it's not true and then immediately I confirm <laughs> the truth me myself yeah. is a symbol i don't think yeah. yeah we need to spend time analyzing these dreams but I, that was yeah. that was fun it, well, how about this Let, let's let's give each other a pass fail grade i think you pass you pass as well i, think I, was, right. I, was, I was gonna get really mad if you said i failed after that i was, <laughs> I was gonna throw a tantrum and never do a podcast That's, with you again yeah. so good move yes i knew that to be the right move <laughs> oh, silly. Um, oh my guys. goodness Good Lord. Disgusting. Um, so <laughs> just since we're not talking about dreams, I think it may be worth pointing out like there's we talked about this, but I, I brought up recently to someone, you know, I was talking about my podcast as one does when one has such a successful podcast. That's right. And you know, like I mentioned that we talk about our dreams and the person like facepalm. They're like, that's the worst thing you could talk <laughs> about. Like no one likes hearing about other people's dreams. It's just the yeah. most 
egocentric you know there's no sort of pattern to it so it's not like a real story that happens (laughs) it's just like random stuff that doesn't matter like we're always we would be we're always angry when we like read an amazing story and then oh i the whole time it was a dream oh yeah it feels like a complete cop-out i think that just extends to everything like well if it was a dream it doesn't matter but of course we're like we need the fodder it's like this whole thing is about dreams or a huge part of it so i think it is important to talk about our own personal experience there and hopefully people will just forgive us if it's kind of right (laughs) well and you know well we put it at the end for a reason right people can just stop listening but i you know i think i think it's fair to say that you know i'm not gonna say that they're interesting because i don't really know that i don't want to just make that claim maybe they are but I will say they're, they're surely more interesting than just saying a dream because we're actually trying to analyze the symbolism in them. So, you know, mm-hmm. at least there's that. At least they're not just dreams like, yeah, and then uh, then I woke up and that was weird. And then like there's nothing <laughs> else after. Anyway. All right. Well, I think we can cut it out here unless you had anything else you wanted to, to touch on. No. No, I have nothing else to touch. Everybody have a nice day. Thanks for listening. All right. Peace, guys.